0: Well, we were kind of standing and seating and half standing and seating for a while, that was fun. Little theologians, glad you're here this morning. Uh, I don't want you to draw a picture. I want you to draw letters for me. Maybe that makes moms and dads a little bit happier. We're drawing letters. I want you to draw Greek letters, but you'll draw them in English, using English characters. I-D-O-U, got it? I-D-O-U. I do. What could be easier than that? But it's a beautiful word. I'd like to collect from you at the end of the service examples of these letters made quite beautifully because I do is a beautiful word. And I'll tell you what it is towards the end of the sermon. That'll be the conclusion. Our passage this morning, Mark's Gospel. And by the way, welcome to those of you who are not little the- theologians. Welcome. Glad you're here as well. Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church. So Mark chapter 10 is uh, where we are and uh, we'll look at a lengthy passage, uh, 32 through 52. So Mark 10 beginning at verse 32, if you could open your Bibles there. And if you would please join me in prayer and then we'll look at this passage. Let's pray. Father, how uh, majestic and wonderful and beautiful uh, is your word. Would you give me uh, a sense of clarity with regards to what that word is before our lapse this morning? Uh, Father, would you uh, calm my heart? Would I not try and say everything that is in your word, but rather uh, ex- uh, ex- uh, expose your word, put your word on display, that your glory would be heard, seen, and obeyed. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse uh, 32. God's word says this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, "'Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you.' And he said to them, "'What do you want me to do for you?' And they said to him, "'Grant us to sit, one on your right hand "'and one at your left, in your glory.' And Jesus said to them, "'You do not know what you're asking. "'Are you able to drink the cup that I drink?' For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as, was, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of our Lord. Does anyone here uh, remember uh, what checks are? You know, like checkbook, write a check, sign it, and give it to someone. It's a lot like currency. <laughs> Do you know what currency is? Right after I graduated from high school, uh, just as I was starting college, uh, this is uh, in Anchorage, my family uh, ran into some financial stress and uh, dad, it was just uh, dad, Kevin and I, Kevin's my younger brother, Uh, Dad had to work away from home for long periods of time. He's a uh, helicopter pilot, and he would work in uh, fire camps for extra money, uh, you know, hauling firefighters around the Alaskan interior. And he'd he'd sometimes be gone for uh, always weeks at a time, but sometimes as long as three weeks. And so it was just me, Dad, and Kevin. And each time Dad got ready to leave, uh, I'm the eldest, he would give me a stack of signed checks. This was so I could pay for groceries and so that the utilities would be uh, paid if they came due while he was gone. But imagine, imagine that, just a stack of signed checks. Man, that's power. I mean, I could have purchased almost anything. To be honest, I don't, I don't remember um, any uh, especially creative purchases beyond the grocery bill would sometimes include items from aisles we didn't normally shop. That really was it, but a nice stack of signed checks. And commenting on this this passage, one scholar named James Edwards, he says that, you know, James and John in this passage, they're actually asking Jesus for a nice thick stack of signed checks. They want to be able to buy whatever they can buy. I mean, Uh, Look at verse uh, 37. They say uh, to Jesus, this is James and John speaking, they say, uh, grant us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. Allow us, grant us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. And, And really what they're asking for is they're asking for this guarantee of no questions asked authority. They want the ability to use the power and the authority and the clout of Jesus however they want signed checks. You may have uh, found it odd, by the way, as we're reading this passage. Long passage, right? 21 verses. But as we're reading these uh, passages, uh, there's actually three uh, scenes, and I'm stitching these three scenes together into uh, one sermon. It may seem odd to you, but it makes sense. In the opening section, verses 32 through 34, Jesus is using especially clear language to tell his disciples what will happen in Jerusalem. Now, you and I, we've known for several weeks that Jesus has been pressing south to Jerusalem. We've also known for several weeks that Jesus, he has been making this known to his disciples. What exactly is going to happen? I mean, we know this. But you and I are also chronologically privileged to know exactly what will happen in Jerusalem when they get there. But really, the disciples should know this almost, almost, almost as well as we should. Jesus, well, this is the third time he's described to them what will happen in Jerusalem. First time's Mark 8, second time's Mark 9, here we are in Mark 10. Three times Jesus has said what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And here he gives uh, more details, you know, details about uh, being uh, delivered to chief priests and and scribes who will then actually deliver him to Roman authorities, to the Gentiles. That's a new part. And that these Roman authorities uh, are going to mock and uh, spit on him and flog him. So new details here. The disciples, I don't know exactly uh, what's happening, but in light in light of jesus saying for the third time what's going to happen in jerusalem i want you to think about this passage as an example of two different ways to live life in light of what's about to happen in jerusalem let me tell you what i mean look at verse 36 jesus he asked james and john what do you want me to do for you that's verse 36 that's the second of, of the three scenes. But look at verse 41, and notice what Jesus asked to Bartimaeus, the blind beggar. What do you want me to do for you? And but verse 36 and, 40, and 51, they're almost identical. I mean, the question is identical. And I believe that Mark expects us to notice this same question as we're making our way uh, through this passage. And Mark wants us to see that these represent two really different attitudes to what's going to happen in Jerusalem. One is to expect the mission of Jesus to secure self-interest. That's what James and John are after. Whatever happens in Jerusalem, we want that to secure our self-interest. But Bartimaeus is nowhere near like that. Bartimaeus, he expects the mission of Jesus to not secure uh, his own self-interest, but to secure the mercy of Jesus to restore him, and in fact, to restore all things. You see, in Jerusalem, the suffering and death of Jesus actually secures not self-interest, but secures the mercy that restores our lives. And what I want to do is I want to spend time right in the middle of the passage at verses 35 through 45. This conversation that Jesus has with James and John, and I actually want the conversation with Bartimaeus to serve as the conclusion of the sermon. I mean, just look at verses 35 through 45. It, it should be clear to see that even as Jesus has confessed three times what will happen in Jerusalem, and even though he's repeatedly described the kind of discipleship he expects from his followers, James and John, they've listened so selectively. I mean, if you turn back to Jesus' words in Mark 10, 31, many who are first will be last and the last will be first, it's almost like James and John are expecting to get their fair share in Jerusalem. Whatever Jesus does there, this is where me is the last gets to be me the first. the road to Jerusalem is for them, a road of expectation for their own glory. Sure, they're going to get a little bit of Jesus's glory, maybe even a lot of Jesus's glory, but they're also going to get a bit of their own glory as well. It's a little bit difficult to understand what's going on in the mind of James and John until, well, until you take a couple of things uh, of note. These guys have already been called in Mark chapter three sons of thunder. So these are pretty loud-mouthed guys, opinionated brothers, not afraid uh, to speak their mind, not afraid to shock others. But there's actually more going on here with well, with this demand before Jesus. I mean, uh, no matter how hard-charging their salesmanship is, no matter how forthright their politicking is, there's something deep going on in their hearts. You can see from verse 37 that they want not just glory, they want more than their share of glory. They want to sit on the right and the left. Two seats of notable authority. They want both of them. They want to be able to control the power of Jesus. Even though that power is not intrinsically their own, they want to drive it. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot like controlling a drone. I mean, you yourself can't fly but you can drive the thing that can. And that's what they want. They don't have the intrinsic power, but they want to be able to control Jesus. You see, in this scenario, Jesus, he might get to do his mission, but a couple of his followers, they get the power to guide and direct that mission for their own purposes. When that happens, it's not really the mission of Jesus at all. It's the mission of James and John driving forward the mission of Jesus for their own self interest. Now, this really puts James and John in quite uh, a poor light, doesn't it? We don't, when we think about disciples, original followers of Jesus, we don't think of guys like this. But with just a little bit of self reflection, What do you think that you and I are doing when we want all the benefits of being a follower of Jesus without following him exactly as he insists upon being followed? Is that difficult to imagine? me ask you this, even as as I'm asking myself this, what's happening when I want what Jesus wants, personal uh, growth and maturity, but I don't want to put the work of studying his word into it? What's happening with that? I want to grow as a Christian, but I don't want to do the things that he tells me I need to do to grow as a Christian. Or what's happening when uh, I want what he wants, closeness with him and his closeness with me, but I spend fewer than 20 minutes a week in sincere prayer? What's, What's happening with that? What's happening when I want what he wants, to be free from depression and worry, but I refuse to mentally set aside my own fears and worries to think about his word as he tells me to think about myself in Philippians 4.8? What's going on with that? Just one more thing. What's happening when I want what he wants? Close relationships with other Christian people. But I refuse to participate vulnerably in the life of the church body. So what's, what's happening with any of those things? It, it, it seems that what James and John are struggling with, maybe, maybe even a bit subconsciously, is a self-interest that masks itself as worship and discipleship. And they want to be followers of Jesus, but only when following Jesus actually lines up with following self. It seems the best way to make this happen is to be able to convince and cajole Jesus into uh, following your plan rather than you following his means of grace for you. And when Jesus attempts to take your life elsewhere, to tell you how to spend your money, to tell you what to do with your time, to tell you who to love, well, we often want to persuade Jesus that he's wrong, that I know better. Real quickly, if you just look down at verse 41, I want to ask you something here. Look down at verse 41, and you'll see that the other ten disciples, they're indignant, right? It's a powerful word in the Greek. They're indignant with James and John. To be indignant is to be actually vibrating with anger. Just think about that ten guys shaking in anger. Well, why? Why are they so angry? I mean, think about this. It could be that they're angry with James and John because James and John are loudmouth buffoons, they're fools, they're embarrassing themselves and they're embarrassing us. They could be indignant because those two guys are yet again, they're making everyone look bad. Maybe, but they might be indignant for another reason. They might be indignant Because these ten men want access to those two seats themselves. Instead of saying, shame on you, James and John, that's a kind of indignance. Instead of saying, shame on you, James and John, they might be saying, whoa, 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 that seat is my seat. And by the way, this is not just my view. This is the view of a number of commentators Maybe the indignance of the disciples is because they themselves are also full of self-interest. And maybe the reason this is hard for us to see is because we profess faith in Jesus Christ, but we have a hard time seeing our own self-interest creeping into our Christian walk subtly and also frequently. And Jesus, uh, he responds to the self-interest of James and John and and to our own self-interest in a couple of ways. You know, we might ask ourselves as Christians how we can root out this self-interest in our own discipleship and worship. And Jesus, he helps James and John by doing two things. Pay attention to this. Jesus does two things to help these men rat out their self-interest in the name of Jesus. At first, in verse 38, he describes with searing clarity his own unique self de- self-denial to ransom them. And then he describes the kind of self-denial that they're to experience as a normal part of the Christian life. Okay, so you'll see how this works to rat out the self-interest in James and John. Jesus, he begins in verse 38 by referring to his own self-denial in order to ransom James and John. Jesus says that the cup that I drink and the baptism with which I am baptized, that these things are entirely unique to him. And we need to see this as a reference of that kind of uh, future in Jesus's life that is specifically his future. He's going to Jerusalem to suffer, to die. He's going to Jerusalem that he might drink that cup of God's wrath. He's going to Jerusalem that he might be uh, baptized with that water of God's judgment. That's a strange image, isn't it, for baptism? We don't normally think of baptism that way. But the cup is this foaming cup of God's unstoppable wrath and punishment, and it gets poured onto foreign nations and Israel and Judah and even Jerusalem. And Jesus alone is able to drink that cup. He doesn't wait for it, you see, in verse 38. Jesus, he actually draws that cup into his own system, and then look at this, uh, this uh, word for baptism. And even though this is the first time baptism is used metaphorically, you need to understand that this baptism that Jesus is talking about in verse 38 is closely related to the cup in verse 38. It, it's another way that Jesus is saying that he is taking the wrath and the judgment of God. Water in Scripture is oftentimes a symbol for calamity of judgment. Just think of the flood of Noah's day. This is all about Jesus' suffering and his death on the cross. By the way, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says there, I have a a, a baptism to be baptized with. He's talking about the cross there as well. This is Jesus' unique calling. Only he can do this, and he does so by denying himself and submitting to the Father. I want you to know uh, what this amounts to. Just look at verse 45. Verse 45 is worthy of memorization. Verse 45 is a theme verse for the entire gospel of Romans. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. He serves us by paying for us. You know that image of ransom. Everyone, Jew and Gentile in the ancient world, would have understood the word ransom. The ransom was a bill that had to be paid in full in order to release a prisoner of war, to release a slave. God, he set a price. And Jesus, he serves us by paying that price, drinking that cup, standing under the baptism of God's punishment. This is an utterly unique service. It's interesting here that that Jesus would uh, ask uh, his uh, his disciples, James and John, uh, hey, can you do this? If you wanna see how uh, deep our self-interest can burrow down into our hearts as Christians, listen to James and John's response to the question that Jesus poses. Are you able to drink this cup and be baptized with this baptism? And what's their answer? No problem. Got it. Next lesson. Skipping through the tutorial. Got it. But only Jesus alone can pay that price for us. In our lives as Christians, we can get so afraid of not getting what we dream of. Living an unfulfilled life in almost any way can sometimes absolutely terrify us. You feel that, don't you? Even as a Christian, terrified of living a life that's unfulfilling in any way. It's almost as if the worst thing in your world is being trapped in a vocation that doesn't align with your skills and with your desires. The worst thing in the world is being married to an incompatible partner. The worst thing in the world is being poor, or the worst thing in the world is being trapped in a body that doesn't line up with your identity. None of these things are the worst thing in the world. Christianity says that the worst thing in the world is to have nobody to pay your ransom. That is the worst thing in the world. To be permanently owned by someone who does not have the authority to own you. Someone who did not create you. Someone who does not have an eternal plan for you. There is nothing worse than to be owned by someone who doesn't have the right of ownership. There's nothing worse to be owned by self. Because you cannot ransom yourself. Jesus alone pays the ransom, and he actually sets you free to be owned by the only one who has the right to own you, your Creator. So you see, the first thing that Jesus does in order to help James and John rat out that self-interest is he describes with searing clarity his own unique self-denial to ransom these two men, the suffering and death of Jesus. It's not there to secure personal self-interest. It's there for another reason. It's there to secure salvation. And the second thing he does is he describes the ordinary life of the Christian in a way that you, ordinary Christian, may not describe it. Jesus actually reappropriates in verse 39 in a slightly different way that language of cup and baptism. And every commentator agrees with this. In verse 39, when Jesus is using cup and baptism, it's different than in verse 38. Jesus says that the the cup and the baptism that you uh, participate in as a Christian, it's real. It's real suffering. And it's part and parcel with what it means to be a Christian you're going to suffer as a Christian. You'll never have the power to ransom yourself. That's been done once and for all. But Christianity, well, that requires suffering. You and I need to understand that the life that we live as followers of Jesus is a life indeed of suffering. If you thought that Christianity was all about your own personal mission, you're wrong. God has the authority to take you, take you places you would never go yourself. You were ransomed you're not your own. You belong to Jesus. And Jesus, he follows the will of the Father, and so should you. This is the whole point of verses 39 through 40. Don't even hope for what you find to be your own will. Verse 40 clearly says that the allocation of any place of authority before God actually belongs to the will of God alone. Don't even waste your time speculating what kind of rewards you're going to get from God in the future. Don't even worry about it. You belong to him. You get what he gives you. He owns you. And it's clear from verse 43 that Jesus, he's not speaking here about this grand kind of suffering as if there's some kind of ranking system to suffering. Why do we feel that that's the case? That there is a ranking system to suffering that applies to the Christian church worldwide. That political suffering that means you have to gather in secret, wow, that's real suffering. And if you have to hide underground, that, higher bonus points for that. Losing your business for Jesus? That's suffering. Receiving ridicule as a Christian university professor? Yeah, that's suffering. But stop ranking it. Jesus is here talking about the Christian's cup and the Christian's baptism that is a cup and baptism of suffering that is always a part of your life. Whoever would be first among you must be slave. To all, voluntary, deliberate, personal slavery to others. That's the kind of suffering James and John are called to. Exercising any kind of leadership capital that God ordains for them in a way that makes them lords over others. Well, that's not appropriate. They're called to suffer, even be slaves for others. This is is what Jesus is doing. He's actually exposing self-interest by telling us there's going to be tons of suffering in this life and that suffering is evidenced in the suffering avoided by James and John already. They refuse to take a second seat to the authority of Jesus. They refuse to give themselves over to his authority. Yeah, there's suffering in the Christian life each and every day to be a slave to others. It bites, hurts, stings. But that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Does any of this, the the singular work of Jesus and the fact that Christianity is a walk of suffering, does any of this begin to rattle you just a little bit that you might see those areas in your life that are areas of self-interest rather than the interest of the kingdom of God? We need to remember where we began In verse 36, Jesus asks James and John what they want him to do for them. And in verse 51, it happens again. And I want you to look at that response of Bartimaeus. This is the last action that Mark wants on our minds as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. You see that? Mark chapter 11, he enters Jerusalem. And the last thing that should be on your minds is Bartimaeus. Jericho is the city of Bartimaeus, and Jericho is a city that's below the city of Jerusalem. You've got to walk up all the way to Jerusalem, about 20 miles. Uh, it's a windy road. It's a dangerous road. It's a road that's filled with a crowd, even a great crowd in verse 46. It's the kind of road that you should be on if, well, if you're vulnerable. You're not going to make it. It's ridiculous to be on this road if you're as vulnerable as a man like Bartimaeus. There's no place for a blind man to hide. And he's actually not on the road, you see that. He's beside the road, a wonderful uh, literary metaphor for a guy like Bartimaeus, sidelined in life, side of the road. He has nothing. And look what he wants. Remember what James and John want, but look what he wants. He wants mercy from God's son. He knows who Jesus is. The town he's from, Nazareth. He knows the royal lineage of Jesus and the fact that Jesus is actually called Jesus, the one who saves. He knows it all. He's loud about it. He's louder still, and he repeats it over and over again. And when he gets the slightest attention from Jesus, look what this man does up off of his bottom, on his legs, mobilized. You get the sense that he jumps up so quick he's about to run, blind guy running on this road. Crazy. And he throws off his cloak. A beggar? Throwing off his cloak? And that's what he does. When he gets the invitation, he's done. He's ready. Jesus, ask me the question. Give it to me what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus is ready for the answer. And I want you to notice something in this answer, and this is really where I want us to conclude, that that in this answer, he's not asking out of self-interest. I know that it's hard to see that in this particular uh, response. He's not asking for his own self-interest, and it's really clear in the original Greek. Bartimaeus, he uses this especially reverent title for Jesus. It's not the normal word for rabbi. It's the word that you would use if you're addressing your teacher in divine prayer. It's that kind of word. So he addresses Jesus as a divine teacher, and he actually wants that which God has already made. God has made eyes to function as he has them to function. He actually wants God's creational will for his life. It's true, he wants to see, but the phrasing of his response to Jesus is actually a praise to the God who has created eyes. Just, just think of this contrast with James and John. It's so, uh, so, it just feels crusty and wooden and harsh, but not with Bartimaeus. James and John, they want something that's special just for themselves two seats, and we want to occupy those two seats. James and John, they want a nice big stack of blank checks. But Bartimaeus, he wants something simple, ordinary, normal. God's creational will that eyes would see. It's all he wants. He wants the will of God. And Jesus, he actually calls this something. He calls it in verse 52, faith. That's what he calls it, faith. Is that you this morning? Go your way, your faith has made you well. But look at the way that Bartimaeus goes. Bartimaeus in verse 52, when he goes his way, what is that way? Look at verse 52. When Bartimaeus goes his way, he follows Jesus. That's his way. Because it's Jesus' will for him. And let me tell you what I think Mark is saying here, and then I'll close. That word, adieu, The word means to see, and Bartimaeus is a man who, in God's mercy, done so by the ransom payer Jesus himself, is able to see. But do you know that this passage actually opens up with that word? Look at the first words of Jesus, the very beginning, verse 33. Jesus says what there? See. See, this is what's going to happen. We're going to Jerusalem, and you're coming with me. We're going together. And Jesus doesn't even say I in the first person. He speaks about himself in the third person. But he's inviting them to see what's going to happen. The Son of Man is inviting you. And the Son of Man is inviting you to do absolutely nothing but watch, observe. Do you see what the Son of Man is doing for you? The Son of Man is drinking up the punishment that you you deserve. The Son of Man is setting aside divinity, self, power, authority to ransom. Do you see this? You actually do nothing. All you're called to do is to just watch. And the Son of Man, he's going to drink up that punishment and he's going to live. And the life that he lives is a life he lives for you. Everything that you need is about to be secured. Do you see it? Your self interest, or they're just immaterial, they don't matter. Jesus says, My suffering and my death secure my mercy for you. And in that mercy, your life is restored. Do you, Christian, see? Do you see? If so, believe. Let's pray together. Father, we need to see. We ask that you would forgive us for chasing after our own self interest. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would give us fresh eyes to see what great price was paid for our salvation. And seeing that, help us to follow. In his name, amen.